2 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 12, and then going through to 2 verse 11. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in, in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Good evening, everyone. My name's Gavin. You can call me Gav, if you like. I'm an assistant minister, same as Ben. Uh, Grace Anglican Churches is made up of three congregations, three churches, in case you didn't know. Ben looks after this one, and I look after a family service that meets at Glidswood Hills, and Johnny looks after a family service that temporarily meets here uh, in the mornings. So it's my great pleasure to be here. I don't feel like I've preached in our church for a little while, so it's nice to be back. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. You should have a Bible in your lap. I've got three questions for you. What do you take to a cricket match? What do you take? Sunscreen? A cricket bat? What do you take to a tennis match? A tennis racket? What do you take to church? 
Okay, I'm going to pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, thank you so much uh, for your love and your kindness. We thank you for your word, the Bible, in all its truth. We thank you for the Apostle Paul who wrote down these letters uh, for us, inspired by you, this one in particular, to the church in Corinth. And Lord, we pray that you work in us tonight to help us focus on your word, not on one another, not on uh, anything else that's happening in our week coming up, but on your word uh, right now. Shape us by your Holy Spirit to be more Christ-like, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to start our time in a little bit of an unorthodox fashion. I've asked Kezia, who's going to take... A, you can do it now. She's going to take a pano photo of all of us that's not going anywhere else but tonight. Okay? No one's going to see this except for you. And after tonight, it's going to be deleted. So it's, on, it's going to be used for my sermon. Okay? So smile, wave if you like. But rest assured, it's not going on social media, it's not going anywhere else, it's going to be deleted in one hour, okay? You'll see that photo later on and you'll understand what it's all about. Okay, forget about the photo. Question. <clears throat> what motivates you in life? What compels you? What gets you out of bed and going in the morning? Uh, what is it that motivates you in life? Perhaps... It's the next holiday. Perhaps it's a holiday. I just had a holiday in Nelson Bay. That's not me. Uh, you'll see me in a minute. <clears throat> I just had a holiday in Nelson Bay. You can go to that screen. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that screen's good. That's good. I'm just saying that's not me. But that's the slide I want. We just went to Nelson Bay, and uh, we went just across the road to swim in the bay, and we're in about this much water. Three dolphins came up to swim with us. Can you believe it? Three dolphins came up. Yeah, I know. Can you believe it? Wow. It was so good. They were right next to us. We didn't pay a cent, but we got to swim with the dolphins. So that was really cool. Maybe it's holidays that motivate you. When's my next holiday? Uh, maybe it's your career. Maybe for most of you, it's not yet. Here's a view over North Sydney from a corner office. Pretty nice. Maybe it's your job, your career. Maybe you're thinking about your career in the future. You're a uni. What do I want to be? What do I want to do? Where do I want to be in 10 years' time? Perhaps for you, it's sport. Uh, here I am at, this is me, I took this photo, the Western Sydney Wanderers game with Lockie Olden, paid for by Ronald McDonald House. Thanks for inviting me, Lockie. That was awesome. Um, so that was really cool. Got to see the Wanderers. They won that one, which is really cool. Maybe sport compels you and motivates you. Maybe it's your family. Okay, this is actually my family. Uh, maybe it's your family that motivates you. Right in the front is one of our godsons. He lives in Chile. He's a missionary in the grave. There you go. Uh, maybe it's your family that compels you and motivates you. Maybe it's getting your very first VR headset that compels you and motivates you. Next slide. Next slide. Is it there? There it is. Look at that. That's my son, Ray. He's got a VR headset. Paid for it out of his own hard-earned. Um, maybe it's a VR headset that motivates you and compels you in life. I was talking to a 27, 28-year-old chat up at um, JB Hi-Fi, and he was very pumped about the next VR headset uh, that was coming out. Okay, thank you. That's it. What is it that motivates you? Um, what compels you? Please get rid of Ray. Thank you. <clears throat> what is it that compels you? In this letter, we're going to see a man who is compelled by none of those things. They're all good things. None of those things are what motivates him. They're not what compels him. They're not what drives him. They're not. Those things aren't what he's passionate about. It's something else. And despite this awesome thing that compels this person that we're going to read about in this passage, he's being criticised. 
He's being criticised, he's being mocked, he's being accused uh, of terrible things, falsely accused. And the person I'm talking about, of course, is the Apostle Paul. So look back at your Bibles at verse 12. And Paul says this, this is, it, this is our boast. When he says our, he's talking about the other apostles. He's talking about those disciples, those faithful ones. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, the church in Corinth, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you can't read or understand. And I hope that as you've understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. You can be proud of Paul just as Paul is proud of the church in Corinth. So to give you a little bit of background, Paul's being accused of being double-minded, being unreliable, being not of his word. He's accused of being worldly, of saying one thing and doing another thing, which is very common in our world, isn't it? Now, it's increasingly hard to trust people. They don't keep their promises. They click on the maybe and they make the decision later. People don't let their yes be yes and no. No, and I think in the virtual world, it's worse. We, we really don't know who it is we're talking to and who it is we're dealing with in the virtual world. It could be anybody who's presenting themselves as who they say they are, but you don't know. So it's increasingly hard to trust people. And Paul's being accused of being untrustworthy. He told the church in Corinth, who he visited on his way to Macedonia in the north, that he would visit them again on his way back. But for their sake, he changed his mind. And instead, he wrote them a letter. Instead of visiting him again, he decided to write them a letter. The facts are, the reason for Paul's first visit to the church in Corinth was there was a major issue. We don't know the details of the issue. Someone did something serious. It was causing division in the church. And upon his departure, the crisis is still unresolved. He writes a second letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And it seems from chapter 7 of this letter that this letter has the desired effect. It causes, chapter 7 verse 9 says, his letter grieved the church into repentance. So it confronted them, but it caused them to repent, which was good. Um, it was for good reason that we'll see in a minute that Paul changed his mind about going back and wrote this letter instead of going there in person. And the letter is referred to here in chapter 2 in verses 3 and 4. Paul wants to be clear that he's only ever motivated by God's grace. There are false teachers amongst the church who teach to be impressive and to sound good and look good. Paul is not like that. His boast, you can see there, his boast is being plain spoken. We didn't write anything you couldn't read or understand. He depends on God and he depends on the power of God's word to transform people. That's what he depends on. He doesn't write or say anything unless he's sure everyone can understand it. He's not trying to be impressive with how he looks or how he speaks. He depends on God's grace. And what he says comes with power because it comes from God. It comes from the Bible. And his hope is that in time, the Corinthians will understand this, that they have a great leader in Paul who always speaks the truth to them because he always speaks from the Bible and they will boast in him. They'll love him deeply for that. And if I could shove Ben out of the room for a moment, I would. 
You too have a leader like that, whose boast is that he depends on the word of God in all he says and all he teaches. Ben looks to God's word and he wants you to hear that. He's not trying to be impressive. I know he is when he puts a guitar in his hands or drumsticks. (laughs) But that's not his boast. His boast is, is God's word, the Bible, in its truth and its power. And Paul knows that his sincerity and his truth will be revealed on the day that Jesus returns in judgment. You can listen again now. Paul will be found out to have been honest and true. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> because I was confident of this, I wanted, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send, on my, send, have you send me on my way to Judea. But he didn't come back again. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Was I saying, was it a maybe? Or do I make plans in a worldly manner? So in the same breath, I say both yes, yes, and no, no. Of course, the answer to this question is no. He's not fickle. He doesn't make plans in a worldly manner. He wanted to visit them again, very much so. We're going to see just how much in a moment. But for their sake, he doesn't return. First reason for not returning is he doesn't think it's going to help. He He doesn't think he's... Personal presence is going to help with the issue in the church and he thinks a letter is going to do a much better job and that turns out to be absolutely 100% true. And the second reason is this, this a, something happens when he's in Ephesus that makes him despair even of life itself and you saw that in verse 8 and 9 last week when Ben preached. Paul's defence, I want you to see, Paul's defence, his boast is that he operates under God's grace. He does everything motivated by God's, God's grace. He can only ever act with honesty and sincerity because he acts by God's grace. He does everything motivated by God's grace. The accusations are unfounded and unfair, made by the church. Paul's not arrogant. He's not self-important. He doesn't say yes but means no. He doesn't click maybe on a Facebook event and then work out what he's going to do later. He, he says yes and he does it or he says no and he doesn't do it. He's a man of his word. He's a man of integrity. His only boast, his only claim to fame is to know Jesus and to serve Jesus by loving the church. That's the first point. Second point. <coughs> I'm not sick. I had COVID three and a half weeks ago. And I haven't got COVID. I've got this dry cough that just will not go away. Okay, so just relax. Um, <coughs> um, as a follower and apostle of Jesus Christ, being unreliable as a follower and as a follower or an apostle of Jesus Christ being unreliable is not an option it's not an option for Paul the message that Paul preaches and is now reminding them of is a message of reliability it's a message of trustworthiness look at verse 18 but as surely as God is faithful our message to you is not yes and no For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him, Jesus, it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, Jesus, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. We say Amen when we finish a prayer, don't we? Amen. So be it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Because of Christ... We pray in his name, and because we pray in his name, God works out his will through our prayers. 
Through the whole Old Testament, right from the beginnings of man, God made promises to his people time and time again. He promised Noah he'd never again flood the earth like he did then, and he didn't. It took a year for the waters to recede. We've seen some serious floods, but it didn't take a year for the waters to recede. God promised Abraham that from him would come a great nation, even though he was old, really old, and it did. God promised David that from his descendants, David was lived a thousand years before Jesus, from his descendants will come one who would rule with peace and, peace and justice forever from his line, and from his line, as it's traced through the Bible, come the Lord Jesus. God keeps all of his promises, and all of his promises are fulfilled in Jesus. The, the yes to all God's promises comes through Christ. You see that? Paul's accusers, who are leading the, trying to lead the church astray and turn a church against him, say the Old Testament's been superseded, it's redundant. But Paul explains Jesus does not abolish the law, he fulfills the law. God does not ignore the promises of the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has come in Jesus, God's answer, God answers yes to all the promises that he made. God's trustworthiness is absolute, made perfect through his Son. And because God's perfect promises are made perfect through his perfect Son, we have assurance. We have solid hope in this life because of Christ. Look at verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In an uncertain world, especially uncertain the last two years, we can have this certainty because of Jesus. God's promises are fulfilled in him. We can stand firm in Jesus. Isn't that a joy? Isn't that a comfort when your life seems in turmoil? Isn't it a comfort to know that we can stand firm like we're standing on rock, not sand, in Christ? And those who trust in Jesus are made to keep trusting in Jesus by God's Spirit. What God has begun, he will finish in us. Romans 8 is probably my favourite chapter in the Bible. Paul writes this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Such is our assurance and our hope and our steadfastness in him by the Holy Spirit working in us. We stand firm in Christ, but it's not an individual standing firm in Christ. It's an us together standing firm in Christ. I just wanted to kind of talk to you about tonight. Paul's letters are addressed to the church of God. He doesn't write a separate letter for each person. It's to the church, and the assumption is the church is gathered together all the time, unless they're really, really sick. They're gathered together to hear the letters read out. <clears throat> It would go without saying that everyone gathers every week, probably every day. Many of the Christians here were eyewitnesses of Jesus himself or kind of they had a first-hand account from someone else who was an eyewitness of Jesus himself. Imagine their excitement of being disciples of Jesus, the one who performed miracles, who died, who rose again, who ascended to glory. 
Imagine their excitement at gathering together with other Christians every day, every week. An excitement that sadly, but understandably, I suppose, we've lost over 2,000 years. We've lost that excitement to a degree. Sometimes we ask ourselves, should I go to church today? We're in perfect health. We've got a couple of other things on, but they're pretty lame, really. And we ask ourselves, should I go to church? Do I want to go to church? Do I feel like going to church today? Rather than diving out the door like the first century of Christians would have, excited to gather with their brothers and sisters in Jesus, even though they saw them yesterday. By God's grace, we together as his church stand firm in Christ now. That is a wonderful truth and a wonderful blessing. But also, God has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, which is eternal life and eternal blessings with him. Because of his spirit in your heart, through faith in Jesus, you are owned by God. If you're a follower of Jesus, God owns you. He bought you by the blood of his son, Jesus, and he will keep you until the very end. We who follow Jesus are owned by God. Who's seen the movie Gladiator? It's getting old now. Yeah, not many. You should see it. We're in education night, Ben. <clears throat> Russell Crowe, the guy on the right, rides home from war. He's been at war for years. He rides home to find his wife and son murdered and hung, burned. And he pretty much gives up on life. And he's found by these slave traders and they capture him and they take him in. And his new master is this guy named Proximo and he puts him into the arena as a gladiator. Proximo makes money from buying slaves and then turning them into gladiators and they fight for people's pleasure and they pay money to see this. Maximus becomes a slave in the service of Proximo. He's owned, he's a slave. You who follow Jesus were once slaves to sin. You had no choice but to sin, to follow and worship the sinful desires of your heart. And God paid the death of his one and only son upon the cross to buy you back from sin. He bought you at great expense to make you his precious child. And then he anointed you for his work, set his seal of ownership upon you, put his spirit in your heart as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, that is eternal life with the son and the father forever. You who were once destined for eternal damnation as sin's slave, now you're destined for eternal life as Jesus' slave. Slaves of sporting glory train tirelessly. Slaves of greed work tirelessly. Slaves of Proximo fight tirelessly in the arena. Slaves of God serve the Lord Jesus. Tirelessly, because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't ask ourselves, should I serve Jesus today? We are his slaves, and so we serve. We don't ask ourselves, should I go to church? Do I feel like it? We're excited to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's what Jesus expects of us. We are bought to love Jesus and live for him and to love one another like the apostle did. 
Third point, in verse 23, Paul calls upon God himself as a witness that he's acting in a godly manner. He's not double-minded, he's not insincere, he's committed to the church. It's for their sake he did not return. Look at verse 23. I call God as my witness, I stake my life on it. It was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. He's their brother. Paul's their brother. He's their co-worker. He's not there to lord it over them. He's working for their joy, for their benefit. He's not trying to grieve them and bring the stick out to discipline them, but rather he wants to love them, encourage them, and get on with ministry with them. And look at verse 4 of chapter 2. He writes, With great distress and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. It's because he loves them so much that he doesn't visit them. He doesn't want to grieve them by his presence, so he writes to them instead. He's sure his presence will only further complicate things and make things even more painful. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. <coughs> I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. It's time to forgive him, comfort him, reaffirm him with your love. Paul and the Corinthians have an intimate relationship. They're a church. Paul's dependent on them. They're dependent on him. But sometimes there is conflict, isn't there? Sometimes there's disagreement. Sometimes someone does something to hurt us or frustrate us. Now look here at the end of our reading, chapter 2, verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we're not unaware of his schemes. Satan's greatest weapon in a church is disunity. Going behind each other's back. Gossiping about one another slandering one another, avoiding one another, keeping people out of your group because you don't like them very much. Satan's greatest weapon in a church is disunity. Gossiping slander is the beginning of the end of a healthy and vibrant church and Paul calls for forgiveness and restoration for the one who has done wrong. Let me wrap up. Friends, it's Christ's love that compels Paul and provides the spring inside him that wells up to overflowing and abundant love for his church. Can you see that? What motivates Paul and compels him is the love of Christ. If we can rightly see ourselves as slaves of Jesus and submit to his loving rule, we too will enjoy that never-ending river of love and servant-heartedness welling up inside us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just for one another here at church, but for all we meet. 
Christ's love compels us to serve. Christ's love compels us to love. Christ's love compels us even to forgive one another. Can I encourage you to live in God's grace? To take time each day to read the Bible and be reminded of God's grace to you. To take time each day to pray to God, to talk to him, to invite God to help you with your day, with your concerns, with your struggles. Live in, practice living in God's grace each day. Don't come to church and then forget about Jesus tomorrow as you get busy with whatever it is you do through the week and then you kind of Saturday afternoon and go, oh, church, yeah. Live in God's grace day by day. Take some time to rest, stop, grab your Bible and read and be reminded of the wonderful truth that you are a child of God. As great as holidays are and family is and VR headsets are, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love motivates us and energises us. Not only are you Jesus' slave, you are Jesus' brother and sister and co-heir and friend. Jesus longs to bless you, to help you, to comfort you, to encourage you. So like Paul, live in, bask in, bathe in God's grace daily. And secondly, if you do this, you will find it easy to love one another and to keep on loving one another for the long haul. As you daily live in God's grace, you'll find living out God's grace to be a freedom, to be a joy and not a burden. Like the first century Christians, you'll hardly be able to sleep on Saturday night. You'll be so excited, like a kid on Christmas Eve, you'll be so excited every Saturday night to come to church on Sunday night. So excited to gather with one another, to learn from God's word, to serve one another, to love one another, to be loved by one another. Where's my photo? There it is. There you are. Living in God's grace makes us joyful to serve one another. This is why we're here, to love one another, to live for one another, to care for one another. For you, I think part of it, a small part of it means being committed to coming every week. You're all here. Great work committed to serving on the roster and being responsible for that, knowing, firstly, putting your hand up to serve and then checking the roster when you're on and, and serving and serving wholeheartedly and being good at and trying hard at what you're doing, whatever it is, vacuuming, washing up, how do I do this right and well, being committed. Because you're a slave of Jesus. You're not a slave of James who makes the roster or Ben who runs a church. You're a slave of Jesus. You're living for him. Serving on a, on a roster is a great way to love others, everyone else, all at once at church. It means being committed to studying God's word, whether you're 15 or 25, 55, 75. Never get tired of studying God's word and learning more. It's God who is our wellspring of loving service of one another. I can't emphasize this point enough. Loving others, being servant-hearted at church. Leave there, leave the picture. Loving others, 
being servant-hearted at church, being servant-hearted at home, being servant-hearted at work and uni, and whatever you do, it's not going to happen by trying harder. It won't happen. And it's not going to happen if this is left closed on the shelf in your room or in your home. It won't happen. You need to be filled to overflowing with God's grace that comes from Jesus, that comes from his word. The means of grace to you is firstly Jesus, but then God's word. I can't emphasise this point enough. You will not, you will not grow in godliness if your Bible stays closed on the shelf. Right, Ben? Right. I was the lead pastor of this church 10 years ago. We had about 10 to 15 people here each week, including me and Sarah. Before Ben. And Debbie. In the middle of the winter school holidays, my first year, we had seven people in church. Seven, including me. We're in the school hall at Harrington Park. Big room for seven people. And we sat in a circle. <clears throat> Look at this church. Look at it. I feel like there's lots of people away tonight. Am I right? And look how big this church is. It's fantastic. You can look at it on the screen if you want. You can look around. This place is a hive of activity and service and love, which is fantastic. It's growing and growing and growing. Why? Because you're committed to God's word, to reading God's word, to knowing God's word, to living out God's word. That's why. Friends, commit to receiving God's grace through prayer and study his word, and this church will grow to the point where it's bursting at the seams, not just with people, but people here serving one another. How awesome does that sound? And when you have a disagreement with someone, which will happen, because we're all human and we all get tired and we're all sinners, you're going to have little fights with each other at times, I promise. Maybe even with Ben sometimes. Ben might do something that you don't like. It could happen. <laughs> It will probably happen. He'll disappoint you in some way at some point. Whatever you do, when that happens, don't avoid that person. Don't avoid your brother or sister who you are united to by the blood of Jesus. Like Paul said, seek them out, talk it through, forgive one another, repent where you need to. And then be reconciled in love. And you might need help to do that. <coughs> so you might need to talk to your growth group leader or talk to Ben. Or if issues with Ben, you might need to talk to Jono about how to sort it out. But don't just leave it or avoid that person. Or sort it out in love. Talk to one another. And then pray for one another. Forgive one another and go on again in love for one another. Okay? Can you do that? Yeah? Okay. Seriously, where else would you want to be on a Sunday night but right here? Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for this church. Thank you for this <coughs> wonderful group of, group of people that you bought at great personal expense by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him and we thank you for his love for us. And Lord, we pray that we will Remember your love to us through Christ every day. Remember the Holy Spirit at work in us, convicting us, 
of the truths of the Bible. Lord, help us to just delight in your word, to make time each day, make a priority of reading your word and delighting in your word and committing to hearing afresh of your love for us, being reminded that we're a child of you and the joy that that brings. And Lord, we pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, your love will overflow in us to others. Firstly, to those here at church. Help us to be excited to come to church, to be early, to ready, be ready to love and serve others. Help us not to come to church for ourselves, but for everyone else. And the Lord, we pray as we go out, we'll be so filled with your love, it will spill over into our families, into our friends, into our colleagues, into anywhere we go. Your love will spill out to all the world. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.